Well, in case you've been sitting there doing the math, Jennifer was five years old when she started <laughs> heading up the, uh, the ministry there. So uh, 20 years, that's great. We have been in a series uh, looking at 1 Corinthians 13, which in many ways is one of the most famous chapters in all of the Bible. And last week, we explored from this chapter the difference between a restrained heart and a changed heart. And I would rather guess that few of us have probably ever looked at 1 Corinthians 13 in this way. I mean, it's certainly a new concept uh, for me. You see, what happened is that I began to do some research and some study, and I began uh, reading and preparing for this uh, new series. And uh, it, it opened my eyes uh, to a new way to look at this, at this chapter. I mentioned a little bit of this to you uh, last week. I've been reading sermons and books by Timothy Keller and Sinclair Ferguson and, uh, and Michael Card. And um, in so many ways, I can't emphasize how much of an impact this has had on me the last five years. I mean, it's hard for me to put into words to express to you how when I discovered this concept of becoming a gospel-shaped person and becoming a gospel-shaped church, it gave me hope. Um, it, it opened up my eyes and my heart in a way that, that really had never been opened before. Uh, to understand the possibility of truly allowing the gospel to be not just something that I accept one time in my life, but that I welcome each day of my life. So on Monday, I set out this week to start uh, working on explaining to you in greater detail the difference between a restrained heart and a changed heart. And I was working on this on Monday and Tuesday, on Wednesday and Thursday. I like to I like to get in my office and I like to go through and finalize my draft and there was one little point that I still had to make so I just sat down and started to write and when I was done I had a totally different message than what I intended and I've been debating since Friday whether or not I should put pause on what I was going to talk about and talk about this instead. And I was debating and struggling with that all the way through the weekend until Kent led our thoughts at the table today. Because he said what has been on my heart this week to share with you. It's about 1 Corinthians 13, it's about love, but I've been hearing so many of the conversations that you've been having. I've been listening to so many of you and the struggles that you're having right now. You're having difficult, challenging conversations with family members, with your kids, with people that you work with, people that you know, and, and you're having these difficult conversations because that just seems to be where our world is right now. And so I've been hearing all of this, and I've been listening to this, and I thought, well, now more than ever, I think that we need to understand what it really looks like to see the world and to see all of these issues that we're wrestling through 
a gospel lens. What is the gospel trying to tell us and teach us as we struggle through these difficult conversations that we're having with each other? So, I just want to I want to put together this collection of thoughts that came to me, and I want to talk about breakthrough, and I want to talk about frustration, and then I want to show you just a real sense of how the gospel helps us in a way unlike any other to begin to understand and define what love really is. So, I want to talk about breakthrough, frustration, and try to explain what love is. That sounds like a lot. Let's pray. Father, may our hearts always be receptive to what You have to tell us, even when it's something that we don't want to hear. Show us how it's what we need to hear. We pray through Christ, the giver of all good things. Amen. So, let's talk about breakthrough. Right now, because of our realities of COVID, the word breakthrough is a bad word. Okay, we see breakthrough as a bad thing. It's not something that we want. And I know there's some of you out there who, like me, are on biological medicines because of medical conditions, and breakthrough is a bad thing. You're taking these biological medicines, and what you don't want to have happen is you don't want the, the illness, the disease, to break through that. So right now, breakthrough is a bad thing. But I want to talk about breakthrough as a good thing. I want, to, I want to talk about this from the aha, light bulb moments of our life, where, you know, where we're just going along and we're just doing our thing and we're just, everything seems to be okay, and then something happens. And we look back at that moment as a breakthrough in our life in a good way. There were moments in my life as a young minister, as a young preacher, where I was just struggling trying to find my own voice, my own words, trying to talk to people who were significantly older than I was about faith and about hope and about love. And so there's these moments where, where I, as a young minister, I, I, I point to these moments in my life as these were breakthrough moments. So in many, in many ways, when I discovered this truth, and I've just discovered this in the last five years, of becoming a gospel-shaped person and a gospel-shaped person, in many ways, my heart has been tilled in over 30 years of ministry in preparation for what I've just come to discover these last five years. So let's get the frustration part out of the way. Um, you know, one of the challenges of spiritual growth, by the way, is that it takes a long time. It takes a long time. I mean, and, and I think that, you know, I don't know what your experience was like, but it's like we say, well, come to Christ, give your life to Him, get baptized, get saved, and boom, you have new life. And that's true. But your old life is waiting for you when you go to school the next day. And so it's a process. It's a journey. It's a, and it's often a painful journey because we know the people that we need to be. We know the people that we want to be, the people that we should be because we're in Christ. But boy, it takes a long time to get there. 
So spiritual growth, man, it takes a long time. So, you know, 30 years of, of ministry, and I started when I was 5'2", by the way, 30 years of ministry and, and study and, and preparation and preaching and teaching and counseling, and yet still stuck and still stalled in some areas of my life where it comes to spiritual growth. And so, work harder? Sure. Work smarter? Okay. You know, dig in, dive in, try harder? Okay, I, okay, I got it. I hear it. Read this book, take this class, teach this class, preach this sermon. I mean, the more I pursue holiness in my life, the more I experience and understand how unholy I really am. And so this, this struggle, this, this journey to, to see this goal of what Paul says, I am not yet where I need to be. I know where I am now, but, but I just get stuck in my life, and I've been stuck in my life over the course of my life. I mean, I can check boxes when it comes to being morally restrained. Which box do you want me to check? But a changed heart? Wow. That has been a slow and painful process. So that's my frustration. Now back to the breakthrough. So it wasn't long into my first preaching appointment. I am a young preacher, and the elders come to me and they say, we want you to preach a sermon on disfellowshipping. Or as I've heard someone refer to it as dismembering. It's pretty good. I wish I'd thought of that. My first reaction was, uh-oh, I should have asked more questions in the interview. And uh, so I dug in and I preached a sermon on the biblical basis of withdrawing fellowship. Doesn't that sound like a lot of fun? Right? See, I was a young preacher and I didn't have a fully formed philosophy of preaching at the time. I mean, can you imagine if you were a visitor the first time you had ever walked in the doors of a church building and that's what you heard? I am ashamed of that. And it gets worse. After the sermon, a person came up to me and said, that was the best gospel sermon I've ever heard you preach. There were two things there. One was shock, and one was irony. The shock was, I remember, what? Because this pang just hit me in my heart that what part of the gospel was that? Where, where, is, where is this good news? The irony of the comment was that the person who said that was the exact same person that the elders wanted to dismember. You can't make that kind of stuff up. 
So this was a, this was a painful moment in my life. But it's this first moment that I remember as a young minister of where the gospel, it's, it's, you know, we, we talk about Jesus knocking on the door of our hearts, and this is Jesus trying to break down the defenses of my heart. Because the gospel is not the same as doctrine, and we forget that. We're, we're confused about that. The gospel is the good news of what Jesus Christ has done to save us. And if the point of the sermon is not Christ and Him crucified, if the point is not what Jesus Christ has done for us right this very minute, it's not a gospel sermon. It may be a good class or a good seminar, but it's not a gospel sermon. When we're wrestling with the truth of what Paul says, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's gospel. Where we live, where we take our stand. To trust in and rest in a righteousness that is not ours. Second breakthrough moment. As a minister... I've been with people in the waning moments of their life. And some of these moments have been moments of deep faith and trust. They have. They've been inspiring. They've been encouraging as if if God Himself is in the room. But some of these moments have been moments of just fear and doubt. As a young minister, it was a troubling thing for me to experience the reality of this moment. I mean, first of all, you had the physical aspect of this, of being with people as they died. I wasn't, there was no class that covered that. And then the second part of that was being with people who, as they're dying, people who who I would look to and say, this is a, this is a pillar of faith, this is an example of, of hope, of joy, of love, who in these moments of their life are scared, are fearful, are, are, are asking questions that, that make them doubt in the, in the goodness and the kindness of who God is. These, these moments, I, they have had a profound impact on me. I remember one of my college professors in a class just for Bible majors asking this question one time, how do you preach a funeral for a Christian and a non-Christian? And someone from the class said, oh, that's easy. For the Christian, you tell the truth. For the non-Christian, you lie. man, I'm going to need a better answer than that. See, I've been with people that I looked up to as these pillars of faith, as these examples of faith, hope, and love, and in the final moments of their life, they're asking two questions. Am I good enough? Have I done enough? The gospel answers both questions, but not in a way that you might expect. 
And the gospel's answer is not an answer of delight in our despair. Have I been good enough? No. But Jesus is good enough. Have I done enough? Absolutely not. But Jesus has done enough. Could I do enough? The answer is no. But Jesus has done enough. See, the gospel answer is an answer of hope to heal our hearts. We've considered before the idea of good doctrine versus bad doctrine, and I stand by it. When I tell you it's impossible to have good doctrine with a bad view of God, if you have a bad view of God, there is no way you're going to end up in good doctrine because bad doctrine always comes from a bad view of God. And, and listen, I know this is hard for some people to hear. I get it. Religious people are brought up with the idea that you have to be good enough to go to heaven. Religious people are brought up with the idea that you have to do enough good things to go to heaven. And this is why, sadly, so many religious people that you meet are the most troubled and afflicted people you will ever come across. How could you blame them? I mean, when you've been beaten up and beaten down your whole life with this type of bad doctrine, when you know more about fear and doubt than you do love and hope, is it any wonder that you're going to respond that way to everything that this world throws at us? So a lot of times we don't have an answer of hope of love and faith and joy to this world because it's absent from our own heart. The principal belief of this doctrinal position is summarized in two principles. Good people are saved, bad people are lost. That good people do enough good things to be saved and therefore are righteous, and bad people do enough bad things to be unrighteous and therefore are not saved. It's a very tidy doctrinal position, except it's not true at all. It's not true. The gospel teaches us the opposite that unrighteous people are saved, and that righteous people are lost. That's what the gospel teaches us. I mean, this is what Jesus meant when He says in Luke 5, 32, I tell you, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So if you'll look at the ministry of Jesus carefully, you'll notice on a broad scale, with a few exceptions, that the righteous people rejected Him, and the unrighteous people flocked to Him. You know, ask yourself, why did so many of the religious, righteous people reject Jesus? The reason is they already had a righteousness of their own, and they didn't need Jesus. 
And then you say, well, why did so many of the irreligious people, those considered to be unrighteous of that day, why did they flock to Jesus? Because they were accepted by the one who was rejected. They found in Him something that had been withheld from them their entire life, God. And listen, today this reality has not changed. You either have a righteousness of your own and you don't need Jesus, or as Gus, my favorite character on Psych, says, you need Jesus and you need His righteousness. So, uh, in February of 1964, the Beatles invaded America. Who remembers that? You remember where you were? They said that 74 million people watched this on the Ed Sullivan show. 74 million people. And you know what happened when the Beatles invaded America? A few things changed. No, everything changed right? I mean, people point to this moment as saying this was a major shift in America. All right, who remembers where they were when grace invaded our churches? Do you remember that moment? When our churches first started talking about grace, not as some abstract concept for those people who went to the other churches, but for us. So grace came into our churches and we became more divided and more polarized than we had ever been before. I mean, you see, the more the pendulum leans one way, the more people try to pull it back the other way. And so, the more the pendulum leaned toward grace, the more legalism tried to pull it back. And you know why this is? It's because we're a pendulum kind of people. That's just the way we operate, right? In churches, this is how it works. Our next preacher is going to be nothing like the one we have now. And please don't say amen too loud to that right? That's just the way it works in churches. We, just, we go one way and then we go this way. I mean, our sinful nature is at work, and so we are prone as people to polarization in most areas of our life. Are you ready? Do you put the toilet paper on so that it goes down or so that it goes under? I mean, we'll have debates about that. We look for ways sometimes. And so when grace invaded our churches, we just moved from one extreme to another. Religious people suddenly became irreligious people. See, what happens is that, that on this larger scale, it was a move from legalism to relativism. And, and I know that I'm making a, a broad generalization here. Suddenly, because of grace, because we were loved and accepted, we felt no need anymore to pursue holiness. There was no behavioral expectation whatsoever. And all things not only became lawful, but they became possible and profitable for us. 
And then, and then you think about at the core of an irreligious person is this subtle and not so subtle idea that it doesn't matter how we live because if God really does exist, He loves all of us the same no matter what. And so the greater push for grace in some circles, the lesser pull of morality. But it's not any better for a religious person. Because at the core of being a religious person is this subtle and not so subtle idea that we can save ourselves by how we live. That we are found acceptable in the eyes of God by our behavior. And so the greater push for morality, the lesser pull of grace. So listen, we're stuck on one side or the other. And, and, and we're both drinking from the same well. And both sides, they're set up for failure. Did you know that the church in Corinth struggled with both realities? This was their struggle. This is exactly why Paul is writing to them. Because they're struggling in their church between legalism and relativism. And Paul is writing to tell them that only the gospel can lead you out of the rule of legalism. And only the gospel can lead you out of the lure of relativism. And we struggle with both realities. And the gospel speaks the same message to us today. It leads us out of legalism and it saves us from the rule of relativism. What the gospel does is it gives us a different way to live. It saves us from legalism and relativism. And so, You know, our church, we struggle. We struggle just like the church in Corinth do because the more things change, the more things stay the same. It's because our world struggles with this. So, there are conversations right now that are occurring throughout our church, as I mentioned, in your families, in your homes. These are the same conversations that are occurring in our city and in our world. And so we wrestle with leadership issues. We wrestle with spiritual issues and moral issues. And because of our sinful nature that is prone to polarization, we often excel in debates, in posts, and tweets, and we flounder in civility and generous, grace filled conversations. We do. And so when you look at the issues that our world is faced with right now, and you look at the issues that some of you are in the front lines of struggling with, you see issues of race and gender, of injustice, of sexuality. You see all of these things occurring, not just in our world, but in our homes. We're struggling, talking about these things, and trying to come to a solution of how we're going to navigate this. And there is no answer in religion for how we are going to do this. Legalism has no answer for us, and relativism has no answer for us in this moment. Only the gospel gives us the answer we need. As gospel-shaped people, trying to be a gospel-shaped church is the only way that we will even begin to engage in the right conversation. It didn't take me very long to figure out that the easiest thing to do is to take a position, dig a trench, hop in it, and fire a few mortars. That's pretty easy. 
You know, the harder thing to do is to inhabit the foxhole of another with grace-filled, gospel-shaped conversations. So don't look at 1 Corinthians 13 just as a way to solve an issue. If you only behaved this way, we wouldn't have a problem. Look instead at 1 Corinthians 13 as a way to engage in the lives of others and have a meaningful dialogue. 1 Corinthians 13 is teaching us not only the way to have a right conversation, more importantly, 1 Corinthians 13 is teaching us how to listen. It's teaching us how to listen. It's teaching us not so that we'll be heard, it's teaching us how to hear, how to listen to people who are struggling in their life. And so let me give you just one example You know, because love bears all things, please bear with me just a couple more minutes. Because I want to show you now, just right quick, how this all fits together. Look at 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Let's just take one of those. Love is kind. All right, the Greek word, it's a huge long Greek word. It's about this long, and it means be kind. That's what it means. The word means, did you notice though? Be kind. See, we look at love as an emotion. When the Bible is talking about love, it's talking about it as an action. Not something you feel necessarily, something that you do. So this Greek word that's huge, just linked to this stage, it means be kind. Let's talk about that just one second. A person who is a kind person is a person who is generous, a person who is gracious, a person who is considerate. And the Bible in many other places actually gives us a great definition of what it looks like to be a kind person what it looks like to exercise kindness. I mean, just one example out of many is Paul's words in Ephesians 4.32 that says, be kind to one another, be tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So that's a pretty good look of what kindness does, someone who's tender-hearted. But listen, there's a kind of love which for the sake of kindness never challenges behavior. There's a kind of love that in deference to being kind never challenges behavior at any time on any level. And so we ask ourselves, because love is kind, does love really have no expectation or obligation? Okay, let's look at another one. Look at verse 6. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Now, This is really funny because in this word, the Greek word is really small. And the word means unrighteousness or injustice. So so Paul is telling us that love does not rejoice at unrighteousness or injustice. Now, now Paul uses this word again in 1 Corinthians 5 in the context of, of sexual immorality when he says, listen, there's stuff going on in the church of Corinth that not even the city of Corinth would practice. Now, that's like a, whoa, 
you're doing stuff in your church that they wouldn't even do in Las Vegas. And not only that, he says, you're arrogant about it. You're proud. See, last week I told you that every description of love that Paul uses, he's already used that word earlier to address something. This is one of those examples. He says, you're arrogant about it. Paul develops this theme even in, the, in, in Romans when he says, it's not just that you're practicing unrighteousness, but you're proud of the fact that you're doing it, and you're encouraging others to do the same. All of that is saying you're rejoicing in unrighteousness. You're celebrating, you're rejoicing in this. So, wait a minute. How can love be kind and not rejoice in wrongdoing? You see, both legalism and relativism, they force you to choose one aspect of love over the other. Legalism forces you to choose one side, and relativism forces you to choose the other side. And the gospel-shaped person is learning how both aspects of love are needed and necessary in everyday life. I mean, if you're a parent, a coach, a teacher, or a leader of any kind, you understand this reality every day. You know, the difference between being firm and, and fear. You understand that you have to embrace both sides of these at the same time. As gospel-shaped people who are compelled by love, here's what we learn, that love that is truly kind does not rejoice in wrongdoing. And love that does not rejoice in wrongdoing is truly kind. We're not having good conversations today about difficult issues because each side is forcing the other into an absolute. That's why we're not having good conversations, which is a little ironic when you think about it in the era of not having absolutes. It's very ironic. You see, legalism says, if you don't see it this way, you're wrong. And relativism says, if you don't see it this way, you're wrong. They're both intolerant. They're only willing to accept you if you agree with them. That's no answer for us. The gospel says the way we're going to have these conversations is that we're going to engage hard topics with truth and love. That we're going to love someone enough to speak truth, but we're going to love truth enough to speak love. That we don't get to choose. Don't you see? You can't just pick one. You can't just pick one and say, this is what love means to me. You have to have all of them as a gospel-shaped person. You can't just pick the one that suits or feeds your bias. In love, Jesus showed kindness to a woman trapped by legalism. In love, Jesus spoke truth to a woman lured by relativism. He speaks a loving word of hope to those who are weary and those who are burdened, those who need rest from the demands of performance. And He speaks a challenging word of truth to those who are insistent upon saving themselves and excluding others from the kingdom because of who they are. We love because He first loved us. We forgive because He 
forgave us. We serve because He served us. And after all, isn't that what church is all about? Let's pray. Father, give us your heart. Give us your heart. Give us the strength to show love in all of its forms, to be courageous when we need to, to be generous and gracious when we can. Father, I pray that even now your Holy Spirit is is taking your truth and is speaking into these places of our heart where we most need hope and healing. And I pray through Christ. Amen. As we stand together and sing in this next song, our elders are going to be in the breaks. If you want to respond to the gospel this morning, if you want someone to pray with you, please do so as we're singing together.